Chapter Four of The Life of Oscar Wilde by Robert Sherard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. It was probably rather by the other contents of Number Three O Four of the Nation than by the article Yacta Alia Est that Dublin Castle was alarmed and deemed it advisable to order the confiscation of this number, the suppression of the journal, and the arrest and arraignment of Mister, afterwards Sir Charles Duffy. It would be difficult otherwise to understand these extreme measures, for the article is exactly of that class of revolutionary literature which is usually read with gratification by those in power. There is no mischief to be feared from rhapsodical generalities. On the other hand, the papers giving practical advice to the malcontents on subjects so subversive as the destruction of bridges and the manipulation of firearms certainly warranted action. However that may be, it has generally been conceded to Lady Wilde that with her pen she made the castle tremble. She stepped at once to the front as an ardent nationalist and patriot, and of none of her writings were her sons perhaps more proud than of the article which is given in the preceding chapter. Her nationalism was, of course, not sincere. It could not be. She had been trained as a Protestant and a Conservative. Her relations, those of whom she was most proud, were beneficed dignitaries under the British crown, just as later her husband was to become by appointment, warrant and vice-regal favour a dependent of British royal favour. And she herself, during the last six years of her life, was to draw from the civil list a small alimony of imperial silver, no patriotism, no national spirit can be fired in man or woman by the perusal of a single book, and of de Alton William's work it may be said that it inspires nothing but ennui. It is not in this way that the Jones of Ark are driven forth to battle. It is, of course, probable that it was the perusal of this book which suggested to the young woman that evils existed, that here was a field for her literary activity, and that her spasmodic nationalism was the result. It showed the young woman's practical sense that this nationalism was only spasmodic, for as we look back on the period of more than half a century which has elapsed since she first manifested its spirit, we observe that it has not been the worldly wise amongst Irish men and women who have espoused the national cause. For the true nationalist, there have been the galleys, the rifle, the scaffold, and, as a set-off from the derision of the worldly wise, the mute gratitude of the voiceless people and a martyr's crown. Lady Wilde's crasser Minerva did not allow her to cling to a cause of which she was so soon to discover that it was a hopeless one. Her nationalism, if whim it were, she readily abandoned, and she did not go through life explaining that the perusal of a single book had entirely changed the current of her thoughts, her purposes and aims. This was one of the mistakes that was made by her son, Oscar. It pleased him to say that some single book, which had come into his hands when he was a young man, had thus revolutionised his entire mentality, and he attributed to the influence of this book all the things that seemed to have been prompted in him by what was not common sense. In a passage in The Picture of Dorian Gray, 
he describes how the hero of that novel fell under the influence of a single book. Quote, it was the strangest book that he had ever read. It seemed to him that, in exquisite raiment and to the delicate sound of flutes, the sins of the world were passing in dumb show before him. It was a poisonous book. The heavy odour of incense seemed to cling about its pages and to trouble the brain. The mere cadence of the sentences, the subtle monotony of their music, so full as it was of complex refrains and movements, elaborately repeated, produced in the mind of the lad, as he passed from chapter to chapter, a form of reverie, a malady of dreaming, that made him unconscious of the falling day and the creeping shadows. For years Dorian Gray could not free himself from the influence of this book. Unquote. This is, of course, silliness. Yet Oscar Wilde used to make the same silly, self-deceiving statement about himself, and attributed to some poisonous book, which he had once read, many of the abnormalities of his conduct. In this, no doubt, he was prompted by the story which he had heard at home as a boy, how the mother whom he so admired and so loved had been prompted to action and to an entire renunciation of early principles and creeds by the reading of a single book. The fact that the influence of this book had been of the briefest was entirely overlooked. The story of the first meeting between the editor of The Nation and John Fenshaw Ellis is well known. It may, however, be repeated here, with the addition of Lady Wilde's own account of how it was that, having long refused to let Mr Duffy call upon her, she finally gave him permission to do so. After a while, she relates, Mr Duffy wished me to call at the office, and again Mr Ellis had to excuse himself from doing it. One day my nurse came into my room and found the nation on my table. Then she accused me of contributing to it, declaring the while that such a seditious paper was fit only for the fire. The secret being out in my own family, there was no longer much motive for concealment, and I gave my editor permission to call upon me. Even then, as Sir Charles Duffy has since told me, he scarcely knew who Speranza might be, and great was his surprise, therefore, when I stepped out from an inner room. Sir Charles Duffy relates in his Young Island that, quote, Mr Ellis, whom he had frequently requested to call upon him at the nation office, pleaded that there were difficulties which rendered this course impracticable. Finally, Mr Ellis asked the editor to call at 34 Leeson Street. Going to the house, Duffy states that he was met by Sir George Smith, publisher to Dublin University, who presented him to Miss Jane Francesca Algie, whom he describes as a tall girl whose stately carriage and figure, flashing brown eyes, and features cast in an heroic mould, seemed fit for the genius of poetry or the spirit of the revolution. Unquote. After the suppression of the nation, most of the leaders of the revolutionary movement were transported for treason felony, while Mr afterwards Sir Charles Duffy, was put on trial for sedition. The Attorney-General quoted from the article Yacta Alia Est in support of the charge, and declared that the article was sufficient to convict the prisoner at the bar. 
I am the culprit, if culprit there be, cried a voice from the gallery of the court, and a young woman rose to her feet. It was Jane Francesca Elgie, who by this fine gesture endeared herself forever to the Irish nation. The result was to trouble the minds of the jury. They disagreed, and the editor of the nation was discharged to pursue his career more profitably to himself in another hemisphere. Speranza's admiration for this man appears to have been very great. The following is one of the many letters she wrote to him after her identity had been disclosed. Quote, 34 Leeson Street, Monday. My dear sir, I return with many thanks the volume of Cromwell which has been travelling about with me for the last four months, and shall feel obliged for the two others when you are quite at leisure, though not even Carlyle can make this soulless iconoclast interesting. It is the only work of Carlyle's I have met with in which my heart does not go along with his words. I cannot forbear telling you, now the pen is in my hand, how deeply impressed I felt by your opening lecture to your club. It was the sublimest teaching, and the style so simple from its very sublimity. It seemed as if truth passed directly from your heart to ours without the aid of any medium. At least, I felt that everywhere the thoughts struck you, nowhere the words. And this, in my opinion, is the perfection of composition. It is soul speaking to soul. I never felt the dignity of your cause so much as then. To promote it, anyway, seemed an object that would ennoble a life. Truly, we cannot despair when God sends us such teachers. But you will wish me away for another four happy months if I write you such long notes, so I shall conclude with kind compliments to Mrs Duffy and remain yours very sincerely, Francesca Elgie. I only read your lecture, sometime or other, I would like to hear you. Unquote. A year or two before she died in the dismal house in Oakley Street, Chelsea, which her son William and his family shared with her, and of which her son Oscar paid the rent, Lady Wilde said to a young Irish poet, I must go and live up Primrose Hill. I was an eagle in my youth. By various writers, various pictures have been given of this extraordinary woman at various periods of her life. There are many people still living in Dublin who remember Number 1 Merrion Square when it was THE Salon of the Capital. On reception nights, the crush of people in the drawing rooms upstairs used to be so great that it was a familiar spectacle, that of Lady Wilde, elbowing her way through the crush and crying out, However am I to get through all these people? As her beauty departed from her with the advance of years, Lady Wilde used to darken the rooms in which visitors saw her. Stories got about that the purpose of this was to conceal some disfiguring mark on her face, but the fact was merely that she did not wish people to notice the difference that time had wrought on the features and complexion of the beautiful Speranza of 1848. A Miss Corcoran gives the following account of a call she paid to Lady Wilde at number one Merrion Square, an account which is not characterised by much sympathy or kindness. Quote, I called at Merrion Square late in the afternoon, for Lady Wilde never received anyone until 5pm, as she hated strong lights. The shutters were closed and the lamps had pink shades, though it was full daylight. 
a very tall woman, she looked over six feet high, she wore that day a long crimson silk gown which swept the floor. The skirt was voluminous. Underneath there must have been two crinolines, for when she walked there was a peculiar swaying, swelling movement, like that of a vessel at sea, with the sails filled with wind. Over the crimson silk were flounces of limerick lace, and round what had been a waist, an oriental scarf embroidered with gold was twisted. The long, massive, handsome face was plastered with powder. Over her blue-black, glossy hair was a gilt crown of laurels. Her throat was bare, so were her arms, but they were covered with quaint jewellery. On her broad chest was fastened a series of large miniature brooches, evidently family portraits. This gave her the appearance of a walking family mausoleum. She wore white kid gloves, held a scent bottle, a lace handkerchief and a fan. Lady Wilde reminded me of a tragedy queen at a suburban theatre. Lady Wilde was very popular in Dublin with the people. It is related that, quote, they used to cheer her when she was on her way to the drawing rooms at the castle, unquote, just because some years previously she had urged a hundred thousand musketeers to march upon that very castle and to wipe it off the face of Ireland. In the story of An Unhappy Friendship, we find the following reference to Lady Wilde at home in her son William's house in Park Street, Grosvenor Square, in 1883. Quote, during the first days of my stay there, Oscar Wilde took me to a reception at his mother's house. I was presented as having a volume of poems in the press, and was graciously received. Later on, as I was standing talking to Anna Kingsford, Lady Wilde, holding some primroses in her hand, crossed the drawing room, repeating, Flowers for the poet! Flowers for the poet! It was for me that they were intended, for she came up to me and decorated my coat with the posy. Unquote. Lady Wilde was at that time about 57 years of age. She had by then entirely renounced her natural feminine and pathetic endeavours to conceal the march of time. Her receptions were in broad daylight. The deceptive flambeaux with their pink shades had been put away till nightfall. She was a strikingly handsome woman, Seta Kelkun. Her voice had a peculiar power and a peculiar charm. She seemed happy. Poverty and disaster had not yet come upon her. Her sons were both full of promise and achievement. There were to be noticed few of the peculiarities of dress to which Miss Corcoran calls attention. Yet her black silk bodice was as covered with large old-fashioned medallions as is with orders on garter nights the brochette of the diplomat whose back has been supple all through life. Her clinging to youth, her efforts to mask the advance of age, her horror for the stigmata of physical decay, were all characteristics which she transmitted to her son Oscar. His books are full of rhapsodical eulogies of youth. He never tires of satirising and condemning maturity and old age. In the same way, her fondness for large, showy and curious articles of jewellery, which, especially amongst the Jews, is a trait which often characterises men and women of genius, was directly transmitted to this son. 
the gradual descent of this woman in the social scale is one of the pathetic stories of literary history. This ex-revolutionary had for the society of the wealthy, the titled, the distinguished, the same pronounced liking which was noticed in Oscar Wilde also. As long as it was possible for her to do so, indeed, until at last broken down by disappointment and illness, she finally took to the bed where she breathed her last after an agony of many months, she held her drawing-rooms. But the imperial days of Merrion Square, even the semi-aristocratic reunions of Park Street, were of the past. In the dingy house in Oakley Street, fit scene for the unspeakable tragedies that time held in its lap, the gatherings were the shabby genteel burlesque of a literary salon. Miss Hamilton has given a picture of such a reception in this house, which shows us Lady Wilde just before she resigned herself to desolation and solitude. Quote, I had an invitation, writes Miss Hamilton, quote, to her Saturday at Holmes, and on a dull, muggy December day, I reached the house. The hour on the card said, from five to seven, and it was past five when I knocked at the door. The bell was broken. The narrow hall was heaped with cloaks, waterproofs and umbrellas, and from the door, for the reception rooms were on the ground floor, came a confusing buzz of voices. Anglo-Irish and American, Irish literary people, to say nothing of a sprinkling of brutal Saxons, were crowded together as thickly as sardines in a box. Red shaded lamps were on the mantelpiece, red curtains veiled doors and windows, and through this darkness visible I looked vainly for the hostess. Where was she? Where was Lady Wilde? Then I saw her, a tall woman, slightly bent with rheumatism, fantastically dressed in a trained black and white checkered silk gown. From her head floated long white tulle streamers, mixed with ends of scarlet ribbon. What glorious dark eyes she had! Even then, and she was over sixty, she was a strikingly handsome woman. Though I was a perfect stranger to her, she at once made me welcome, and introduced me to someone she thought I would like to know. She had the art de faire un salon. If anyone was discovered sitting in a corner unnoticed, Lady Wilde was sure to bring up someone to be introduced, and she never failed to speak a few happy words, which made the stranger feel at home. She generally prefaced her introductions with some remarks such as Mr. A, who has written a delightful poem, or Miss B, who is on the staff of the Snapdragon, or Mrs. C, whose new novel everyone is talking about. As to her own talk, it was remarkably original, sometimes daring, and always interesting. Her talent for talk was infectious. Everyone talked their best. There was tea in the back room, but no one seemed to care about eating and drinking. Some forms of journalism had no attraction for her. I can't write, I heard her say, about such things as Mrs. Green looked very well in black and Mrs. Black looked very well in green. Miss Hamilton also relates the following characteristic anecdote about Lady Wilde. Quote, when I was at Oakley Street one day, I asked what time it was as I wanted to catch a train. Does anyone here 
asked Lady Wilde, with one of her lofty glances, know what time it is. We never know in this house about time. Unquote. This, adds Miss Hamilton, it seems to me was a key to the way in which Lady Wilde looked at things. Trifles, everyday trifles, she considered quite beneath her, and yet trifles make up the sum of human life. She had a horror of the miasma of the commonplace. Her eyes were fixed on ideals, on heroes, ancient and modern, and thus she missed much that was lying near her, close to her feet, in her fervent admiration of the dim, the distant and the unapproachable. The great caricaturist Dickens, whose notice few of his distinguished contemporaries escaped, seems to have studied some of Lady Wilde's peculiarities from afar, and the results of his observations may be found here and there in his books. After her marriage, Speranza, abandoning poetry and the young Ireland movement of which she had sung, We stand in the light of a dawning day with its glory creation flushing, and the life currents up from the pristening clay through the world's great heart are rushing, while from peak to peak of the spirit land a voice unto voice is calling, the night is over, the day is at hand, and the fetters of earth are falling, turned to prose. In a letter dated from Oakley Street in 88, she writes to Mr. D.J. O'Donoghue the following account of her literary and journalistic labours. Quote, Dear Sir, in answer to the inquiries contained in your note, I have to state that I have contributed to many periodicals in London, amongst others to The University Magazine, Tinsley's Magazine, The Burlington Magazine, The Woman's World, The Queen, The Ladies' Pictorial, The Pall Mall Gazette, and others whose names I cannot now recall. The more important writings of recent years are Driftwood from Scandinavia, Bentley, one volume, 1867, Ancient Irish Legends, Ward and Downey, two volumes, 1887, The American Irish, a political pamphlet, Dublin. But I have recently devoted myself more to literature than to politics. Nationality was certainly the first awakener of any mental power of genius within me, and the strongest sentiments of my intellectual life, but the present state of Irish affairs requires the strong guiding hand of men, there is no place any more for the more passionate aspirations of a woman's nature. Unquote. In another letter to Mr. O'Donoghue, she states, Also, I did not write in 1844 for the nation, nor did I write The Chosen Leader. The following is a list of the best known among the books of Lady Wilde. Poems by Speranza, 1871. Driftwood from Scandinavia, 1884. Ancient Legends, Mystic Charms and Superstitions of Ireland, 2 volumes, 1887. Ancient Cures, Charms and Usages of Ireland, 1890. Social Studies, 1893. She further, wrote the Times biographer of her after her death, quote, translated several French and German works, and was the author of Ugo Bassi, a tale of the Italian Revolution in verse, published in 1857. The First Temptation, 1863. The Land, adapted from Dumas. The Wanderer and His Home, adapted from Lamartine. And Pictures from the First French Revolution, 
1865 to 1875. In 1880 she issued the concluding portion of her husband's Memoir of Beranger. Unquote. She was never photographed, and the only portraits which survive are engravings from pictures. Many of her writings were never published, her poems are still read, and that there is still a demand for her two books, Ancient Cures and Ancient Legends, is shown by the fact that these two books were included in the recently issued catalogue of a large new book-lending enterprise. But these books, however, according to Lady Wilde's own statement, were largely taken from materials collected by or for her husband. He would employ very many people, she related once, quote, schoolmasters in the villages chiefly, who could speak both Irish and English, to investigate and collect all the local traditions, superstitions, etc., of the peasantry. When he died, a great amount of material had been collected, much of which I have published in the last year or so in the volumes entitled Ancient Cures, Charms and Usages of Ireland and Ancient Legends of Ireland. Sir William had a passion for such research, and in recognition of his services, the Royal Irish Academy gave him its gold medal. Unquote. This detailed investigation into the immediate parentage and remoter affinities and relationships of Oscar Wilde has afforded us many data which will go towards enabling the student of his life to understand some points in his complex character, as well as a few of his peculiarities. Of these, some came to him by direct inheritance, in his blood, so to say. Others were the result of that instinctive imitation of their parents, and such of their kinsfolk as are held up as examples for their reverence and admiration, which all children practice. Psychological influences have also been indicated. It may be well in conclusion to sum up under their different headings certain characteristics of his which we are now able to trace back to their source. Under direct inheritance or transmission by blood may perhaps be classed his literary capacity, his gifts of poetry, languages, of ready mastery of difficult studies, his love of the beautiful, the sound common sense of his normal periods, his family and personal pride, and his moral courage in the face of danger, but also an indifference to the dangers of alcoholism, an aversion from failure, physical, social and mental, an exaggerated esteem, on the other hand, for wealth, titles and social success, a tolerance for moral laxness. The instinctive imitation of childhood may explain his love for eccentricity in dress, his professions of an adoration for youth and a hatred for old age, his claim that the perusal of a single book entirely revolutionised his mentality. This rough classification is only advanced tentatively as a suggestion and with all due awe for the complex mysteries of the human soul. The psychology of an Oscar Wilde is not to be resolved into elemental factors by human intelligence, but the few data arrived at may render the problem of that psychology less bewildering, and at the same time, because of the very dimness of the light which they cast, impress us with the magnitude and the obscurity of the problem. 
Now it is not right or lawful for man to judge or condemn that which he cannot understand. When God withholds his light either on the acts or on the motives of a fellow man, it means nothing more than this, that he reserves the judging of that man's acts and thoughts for his own supreme tribunal. End of chapter 4